Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog, All Together, at altogether.swe.org. Looking for more information and data on women in engineering? Head over to research.swe.org and review the groundbreaking research that SWE has been conducting. SWE's research efforts include reporting on women of color in engineering and how community colleges may play a role in getting more women to graduate with engineering degrees. You can also check out the annual SWE Literature Review in SWE Magazine's State of Women in Engineering issue. Hello, I'm Sandra Guy, and I've been writing for SWE Magazine for the past 12 years. Welcome to SWE's Diverse Podcast Series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and to like or follow us on social media. You can visit SWE, that's S-W-E dot org, for more details. You know, every morning as we scroll through the day's news headlines, I think there's always an underlying question. How can I trust what's online? as I read or listen to political debates and controversies? And how might the news that I read online influence my vote? These questions are more important than ever as our next presidential election nears. So we have as our guest, Teresa Payton, CEO and co-founder of cybercrime fighting firm, Fortalis Solutions. Teresa's third book, due out in the spring, is titled Manipulated, Inside the Cyber Ward to Hijack Elections and Distort the Truth. Her first two books are Protecting Your Internet Identity, Are You Naked Online? And Privacy in the Age of Big Data, Recognizing Threats, Defending Your Rights, and Protecting Your Family. Teresa, thank you again so much for your time. Tell us a bit about your own background, please, in keeping elections accessible and at the same time safe. Sure, absolutely. I'm very excited to be here with you and thank you so much for inviting me. And, you know, it's interesting if you had asked me when I came out of graduate school from University of Virginia, if one of the things I would be doing in the future would be, you know, fighting for secure and free elections, I would have chuckled because my first encounter was as a college student uh, voting absentee ballot via the mail. <laughs> so if you had said, this is what you're going to spend your master's degree on, I would have kind of chuckled. But you know, I, I can't think of a greater honor than to be asked to review and help put in place the strategies to protect and defend something so critical and vital to our democracy, which is elections and making sure that not only elections are secure, but that people have faith in them. Because if people lose faith in them, they don't vote. And every vote matters. And so this is really, really important. And it's really one of the key uh, cybersecurity crises of the modern age. So how did you get started in this field? Yeah, so so what's really interesting is uh, you know opening up shop as a cybersecurity and intelligence operations company, uh, we did get approached. Uh, we never name our clients, but we did get approached uh, by uh, a political campaign 
And that political campaign said, uh, you know, we know just enough about cybercrime to be dangerous and we're operating on a shoestring budget. Can you help us protect our campaign? And one thing led to another. And then the next thing I knew, I was helping out a state think through their security strategies for the website, the voter registration database. And then the next thing I know, I have another state asking us to review their uh, election equipment um, to make sure that their processes, even if the equipment was insecure, are there good physical security processes to make sure if technology fails, which it always does um, in every sector, not just elections, um, can we ensure that physical processes could be the safety net? And so what's interesting about that is, is now if you really think about election security as an ecosystem, I've had some role to play in protecting and defending different pieces and components of that election system. And so, you know, oftentimes when you see in the media headlines, you know, were the elections hacked or were the elections meddled with, you need to break the ecosystem down into components because they really are their own things. So there's the whole truth in media advertising and social media, big tech plays a role in that. Then there's the whole, um, how do I find out information to vote? That's state by state, the Board of Elections website, and that needs to be secure. Then there's the voter registrations themselves. How do you register to vote? How do you let them know if you're a particular party or independent? And then how do you know where you're actually supposed to show up to vote in person or apply for an absentee ballot? Each one of those components that I just mentioned are separate and distinct. And then on top of that, you also have the political, uh, the actual people running for office or running for reelection, the campaigns themselves. And then you also have the party headquarters in the states. And then you have the party headquarters nationwide. And each one of those has their own infrastructure, their own technology, and their own way of doing things. So you can see there's a, there could be some security through obscurity, but there's also a lot of complexity. And I often say complexity is the enemy of security. So it sounds like this really isn't new, but that I'm sure it's more sophisticated, all the hacking and the other methods that cyber spies and people who want to create upheaval are doing, how long has all this really been going on and what's different? You know, what's interesting, I'm so glad you said that because, I mean, political espionage, you know, I kind of trace the lineage of political espionage and it's almost as if it started once there were two human beings walking the earth, (laughs) (laughs) political espionage and spying, right? And so, you know, I think really though, if you just kind of want to think about the last couple of decades, right? Because I think it kind of of mind altering to go back much further than that because it's such a different time. But we've had political espionage going on between different countries. But what's really changed has been not just the automation of the election, you know, where do I vote and how do I get the information, but also social media. And Social media is not to blame. It's just another tool and an avenue for you and I to get information, but it's also another tool and avenue 
for fraudsters and manipulators to conduct their campaigns. And they can do it at a pace, speed, scale that they previously could not do. And so what's interesting is, you know, a lot of people have read the headlines about the United Kingdom and the United States and how they, you know, outed Russian meddling in elections around the globe. But really, misinformation campaigns, fake personas, political espionage, instead of slowing down, instead of there being, oh, you got us, okay, <laughs> you know, the jig is up now, um, it's actually escalating. And so what's interesting is there's this wonderful report, uh, the Internet Freedom Report, and they showed that actually in 2017, there continued to be an uptick where at least 18 countries uh, in 2017 were victims of sort of the manipulation and disinformation campaigns. Now, when I say that, some countries are conducting manipulation and misinformation campaigns on their own citizens, where the regime and power is trying to maintain power. So they're actually controlling the messaging that their own citizens are seeing. 2018, it continued to uptick, and I'm anxiously awaiting to see what the final report is for 2019. Um, but it's really interesting because if you think about this, right, the election meddling playbook for 2016, I mean, we've dedicated over two years investigating it. And the significance of the meddling is very hotly debated. And it's not just on political lines. Um, you know, there's been countless hours of grilling Silicon Valley executives on the Hill on TV. Um, there's been hours of testimony on C-SPAN, as well as in Parliament in the United Kingdom. You have a fascinating read. It reads like a fictional whodunit, but it's actually all truth. In the special counsel Robert Mueller report, where dozens of Russian citizens, companies, and intelligence officers are named, and their tactics are named. Uh, and even with things being redacted, there's still a lot of information. And yet, these campaigns continue, and they're not just conducted by Russia. They're conducted by Iran, North Korea, China, and other countries are getting into the act now. You and I obviously talked for a story upcoming in SWE magazine, and uh, the fact came to light that there are 8,000 local jurisdictions that run elections. What's the biggest issue that that level of election officialdom, so to speak, faces? Yeah, I mean, the, the race is on for them because they have those websites, they have the registration databases. And then they have a plethora of voting methodologies and equipment that's largely, you know, that's all produced by the private sector. So for something that happens at a state and local level every year, but at a federal level, presidentially every four years, and, you know, depending on what their cycle is for their uh, representatives on the Hill, it could be, you know, kind of an every year cycle, it just depends on districting. And here you have something this important and this vital, and the states are left to go out and create their own processes and buy their own equipment and figure it out. Um, the one thing I will say that gives me a lot of um, hope and optimism is after the 2016 elections, uh, the FBI 
and Department of Homeland Security got together and created, I'm calling it this, they don't, what I like to refer to as election security in a box for the states. And they have regular calls with the state officials that are responsible for safe and secure elections. They have made on-site visits. They have conducted briefings, including classified information. And everyone is on high alert and high awareness about how important it is to be vigilant, to report things that don't seem right, to be looking you know, for different clues that they might be under surveillance uh, by hackers, which could be nation states or direct, it could be domestic. And uh, so a lot of work has been done. Can we always do more? Yes, because cyber criminals are always doing more. Nation states are always doing more. But it does give me a lot of optimism to see the amount of time, talent, and investment that has been deployed across the United States to try and help these local jurisdictions, because states run elections, to help them be the best that they can, given the sometimes meager resources they have to work with. Okay, great. And of course, our listening audience um, is engineers, um, and engineers love to know how systems work and how to make them work better. So are there other certain specific steps that you can talk about that are being done or maybe even in the future to keep such a critical aspect of our democratic society, our elections and casting our votes secure and functioning? Yeah, what you know what's interesting is, you know, sometimes the best solution is an old school physical process. And so what I've observed, because, you know, election equipment costs money, (laughs) that's taxpayer dollars, right? And so you have taxpayers who want roads and good schools and good fire and police and emergency. Um, And yeah, they want to vote, but, you know, how much money do they want you spending on voting equipment? Yeah, they'd rather have another traffic light, right? Interesting point. um, You know, it's, yeah, it's a, it's very much a balancing act. And so what I have observed in several of um, the state uh, CISOs and different people who are responsible for election security, they take this responsibility very seriously. And where they can't upgrade the technology due to you know budget or time, because everything has to be approved, what I've observed is they've actually put into place Uh, what we referred to at the White House as OPSEC, operational security. So for example, um, a lot of them have said, okay, we're going to have a lockdown, uh, very limited access room within a warehouse where we keep the election equipment when it's not being used. It's locked up. It has a code. We have an audit log of who scans in and who scans out of that room. When a machine is turned on, Uh, memory cards and software cards and things of that nature are completely locked down. And if anybody tries to log in, there's an audit log and, you know, date and time stamp. And um, the, you know, it's set up before it leaves the secure warehouse, then it's loaded on a truck. Uh, Everything is left locked down. Um, It's delivered, you know, everything has a physical security process. I mean, if you think about like, for example, almost like an if it was like a mobile ATM, 
how would a bank treat a mobile ATM because it's full of cash? They would have different levels of security traveling with that ATM, that mobile ATM full of cash. And they would have protocols around that to make sure that people who had access to the ATM couldn't tamper with it and just steal money. It's very much treated like that um, at an election security level. So they treat the hardware as if they're moving gold from Fort Knox to point A, from point A to point B. And you know, so where they aren't able to create the ideal security strategy for an offensive and defensive posture, they've implemented these OPSEC, these physical security processes uh, to keep things as locked down as possible. And when things are touched or changed or altered, an audit log is created. Really interesting that those types of security measures still exist and they're necessary. So that's very interesting. So what can we as voters watch out for as we're scrolling online, you know, researching candidates in our elections? What can we do? Yeah, so this is really important. I'm so glad you asked this question because um, I kind of want to go to high school, a super smart set of classes of high school students that I actually met with last year. And as I was working on the book and, you know, working on these different components of securing the ecosystem and especially researching these manipulation campaigns, I actually went and taught a couple classes on how to spot a manipulation campaign to honors English classes. So these were juniors in high school. They were learning like the Socratic method in English. Um, So very bright willing to push back, um, you know, very engaged. And so the first thing I asked them was, how do you get your news? How do you get information? And so it was interesting. So I just, I said, just shout out. You don't have to like take turns. So television, radio, printed news publications, online at news websites. So then I asked them to tell me the number one place they get their, their news from. And almost the entire room raised their hand when I said social media news feeds of family and friends. So think about that. All it takes is one person inside a trusted circle to fall prey to a manipulation or misinformation campaign and then put it within that trusted circle for the rest to follow. So out of two classes of these really smart students, only one raised her hand and said, I only trust TV news. And I said, really, what do you watch? And she said, I watch with my parents, Lester Holt of NBC Nightly News. And I told her that is great parenting. <laughs> Lester Holt is a personal favorite of mine. But, but think about that for a moment, right? This is, the, this is the next generation getting ready to vote. Some of them will be old enough to vote in the next presidential election cycle. Some will have to wait for the next, you know, so they won't be ready for 2020. Some will be voting in 2020, some will be voting in 2024. So the next thing I did with this group was I taught them how to spot a misinformation and manipulation campaign. And once I taught them how to look for a fake persona, how to look for a fake organization, how to look for a fake account, they could do it with some pretty decent accuracy. But guess the one place that no matter how many times I pointed out the telltale signs to look for, the the class 50% of the time would continue to get it wrong. And they were so frustrated, they couldn't believe it. Guess the one 
thing that threw them time after time from a social media misinformation manipulation campaign. I bet you won't be able to guess. So. <laughs> it was internet memes. So they could spot fake news. They could spot, uh, you know, something that wasn't quite right or somebody playing around with a headline. But I give them a meme. This generation communicates in memes. And their perspective is a meme is an authentic opinion. And if it's in a meme, it's probably pop culture and probably accurate. And so no matter how many times I tried to show them a meme that looked American that was produced by Russians, it just didn't compute. And in almost 50% or more of the time, after showing them the difference, they got it wrong. What would be such a meme? And yeah, so so for example, um, I, I don't know if you remember, but there were memes of like Hillary Clinton with her glasses on with the Blackberry. That's a very popular one. But then they, but the Russians would put different things along the bottom about how she, you know, she didn't care about the military or, you know, just different messages. And because that image resonated with the students and it didn't look slickly put together, it didn't look um, really polished, they saw those as authentic. And how do you spot fake news? What are some tips that you give people? Yes, uh, this is really important. And I know we've got engineers listening to this. So these tips are not necessarily for you because you're smarter than the average bear. These are actually for your family <laughs> members. <laughs> so, um, so because you guys probably already know these things, but these are things you can pass on that will help people who are not, you know, kind of engineering, you know, wired for logic, right? So maybe people who are more wired for creativity or emotion or, you know, for a cause, right? So here are the things that I tell people to look for that are a telltale sign. First of all, if there's a headline that's like, you're not going to believe what this person said, and then a picture that looks legitimate, that is typically part of a clickbait campaign that not only helps a manipulator or a misinformation campaign Get their point across, but it actually makes them money. So you're actually funding the operation by clicking on that. Secondly, take a look at where are you looking at this news piece? Is it in somebody's social media feed? Is it trending on Twitter? And actually go to the legitimate news site itself and see if that's really the way they're portraying that video, that picture or the story. Check more than one source. So if you see something that depending on sort of your causes that you follow, or maybe a party that you affiliate with being reported as news, even if it's on that legitimate site, leave the site, go to an international newspaper, go to their website, go to another website and just look and see for yourself. And it takes longer to describe the tactic than it does to do it, right? When in doubt, a very easy place to go for a lot of these manipulation and misinformation campaigns is actually Snopes.com. You know, they've been around since the early days of the internet, debunking mm. different urban legends and chain letters and all that stuff. And, you know, no, you're not going to die if you don't pass on the, the Mother Teresa, now St. Teresa email chain letter. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times people would send that to me. I'm like, Hey guys, 
And they're like, well, I didn't think there would be any harm. I mean, she's such a great lady. I'm like, okay, just please don't <laughs> pass this stuff on. But but seriously, they, you can really go to these websites like snips.com and kind of check out these stories for yourself. Another telltale sign that you might be dealing with a deep fake video is if the clip is short, it's still very hard to pull off a very long deep fake video without a lot of resources and a lot of engineering skill, quite frankly. So I always say to people, if you see a video and you really want to put it through the test, put it on as big a screen as you can get and look at the mouth because you may see flashings around the mouth. When you do deep fake, AI has a very hard time rendering accurately, moving lips, teeth, and tongue. So you may see a distinguishable flicker around the mouth. The other thing is for people like me with long hair who typically wear dangling earrings, AI has a hard time with sort of the swish of moving hair and dangling earrings. And also look at somebody's ears in a photograph or a video. Really pay attention to their ears because AI has a very hard time replicating the human ear because there's so many variations of them. That's amazing. Great. That's great information. Thank you so much for that. And what about your books? Like, were there certain pertinent moments that you just decided, I really have to write a book about this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because as part of our security and intelligence operations that we do day to day, and because we've worked with uh, political campaigns and you know people that are in the public eye around the world, um, we help them not only with kind of their business side, but we also help them kind of with their personal side and because they are a target. And what's interesting is, is we started to see fake personas from cyber criminal syndicates, from stalkers, but really the more sophisticated ones were from nation states, kind of targeting individuals, campaigns, and even like CEOs of, you know, kind of big household name companies. And so we started thinking about this as a company and saying, well, if they're targeting individuals at this level with these fake personas, uh, and these fake personas are trying to interact with them or incite negative feelings about this individual or this company or you know these types of things that they're doing online, what else could they be meddling with? And then we had the 2016 election. And so that so I had already been thinking about writing a book around uh, manipulators, fraudsters, misinformation campaigns. And then once I saw what happened with Brexit and Theresa May made the commentary that she said she knew Russia had been meddling in their politics and influencing. She didn't say they influenced the vote one way or the other. And, and, and I want people to understand this because when I first decided I was going to write this book on these manipulation campaigns and how they're being used around social issues, not just elections. I really thought it was about picking winners and losers on certain issues. But I learned two really important things, which I reveal in the book. And the first one is they actually don't care about picking winners and losers, whether it's a person or an issue. They actually just want to make sure that you and I 
have no grounds to have a healthy relationship where we can agree and disagree and agree to disagree with each other and still like each other. They actually want to create a level of social discourse that divides us and creates a level of distrust that the system is stacked against all of us and, and have me convinced that you get unfair uh, preferential treatment and have you convinced that I get unfair preferential treatment. The other motive is these manipulators make a lot of money in the process. That shocked me. And, and so those two things together, you know, I really went into this thinking, oh, they're picking winners and losers, and they're, they've got a very strong view on an issue. And the more I dug into the manipulators, and I'm not just talking about Russia, I'm talking about all the manipulation campaigns going on in the world, they actually have a financial benefit even when they argue both sides of an issue. Well, it's obvious that they're trying to undermine our own faith in our democracy to upend our responsibility, basically, to, to argue and to have different opinions and still respect other people. But how, how do they gain financially? <laughs> so this is the interesting thing. If you, if you think about how people will go not just to traditional media, they'll go to other news sources. And if you think about the social media model, where you may have things kind of trending around you um, and your friends and in your newsfeed, a lot of times things are designed to get you to click on the story. And when you click on the story, the way it's set up is they get paid, you know, fractions of pennies for every click. And so the more sensational they make the headline and the little tiny picture that looks legitimate and they get you to click, they make pennies, fractions of pennies on the clicks, but the clicks add up. And so over time, by people having a little bit of a confirmation bias and actually wanting to see more about that story, because I knew it, I knew that person was a bad person, or I knew, you know, I knew it was rigged, and then they click on it, and then they read some story. Well, you just funded somebody's manipulation operation. And so they continue to do it with your help. Yes. You know, it's interesting. Um, one of the things I learned, and I, not too many spoilers for the book, but there's, there's one particular group that people would never guess are actually doing these manipulation campaigns. And I was interviewing somebody um, who I'm protecting his identity in the book. And you'll, when you read the book, you'll understand why. But he reached out to people in this country who are known for doing really good work on the manipulation campaigns. And they said, look, we, it's not that we dislike Hillary or Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, but we've created these models and the models show us like if we do a negative Hillary, a positive Bernie and a positive Trump, we make more money with that than we do a positive Hillary, a positive Bernie and a negative Trump. And so they had done all these algorithms and models. And they had tested it and they said, look, we're just giving people more of what they want. And in many cases, we're not creating news. It's not fake news. It's real news. We're just promoting it and people are clicking on it. And that's what makes us money. And I just was dumbfounded. But there is actually a lucrative business and being a manipulation campaign outfit. And it's not just about destroying democracy. It's not just about picking winners and losers. It's actually about making money. 
who would have thunk, right? <laughs> I mean, like I said, I had the, so what, it's funny when I go into, on any case that we work on, especially when it's incident response and you're doing forensics, but also um, each of the books that I've written, I always go into it with a hypothesis, hypothesis and then I tell myself, well, what's the exact opposite of that hypothesis? And then as I learn things, I actually sort things into what my, what my bias was or my hypothesis, and then what was the opposite one that I created just to hold myself accountable and hold myself in check. Um, and so it was just so fascinating because I went into this, my hypothesis was they're picking winners and losers and it's to destroy democracy. And then I couldn't imagine what my opposite hypothesis was, but I was like, I'm going to create a catch-all bucket for anything that's not one of those two. So that was my anti-hypothesis was it's not one of those two. And so it was just fascinating to find out it was about mostly about money. Wow. So major basis for doing the story is that this is the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote. And so that's why I interviewed for the story, all women who have a really important role and are playing an important role, such as you, in securing our elections. So um, do you find yourself meeting more and more women engaged in this kind of work? How, how is that playing out in terms of women's role? Not only that now we have the right to vote, but that we're helping ensure that our votes count. Yeah, I'm, I'm really encouraged uh, by, I mean, can we always do more for diversity? Of course. But I, I really am encouraged that so many, you know, oftentimes to get change, it does require a grassroots effort, but you got to have muscle behind you. And where do you get the muscle? Candidly, you get the muscle from big uh, private corporations who can actually move mountains because of the amount of staff that they have. And I have to tell you, you know, an organization I've been so incredibly impressed with that's really been leading the way on a lot of things on election security is Microsoft. And the majority of people I've talked to over at Microsoft who are passionate and focused on election security are women. And so I, I, and I use that just as one example. There's certainly many other women at many other organizations uh, that are doing a great job. But I, I've I've really been impressed. You know, the CEO has made toolkits available for free, and you and I both know that requires development. It requires testing. It requires support. And you know, so obviously they decided, you know, we'll we'll figure out how to make profit somewhere else. But as it relates to securing elections. This is something we're doing pro bono. I think that's huge. You know, the fact that they actually put in extra safeguards and monitoring and surveillance on Office 365, for example, and proactively started calling campaigns and individuals saying, I think you've got a problem. That's pretty incredible. And, you know, so I, I've been really encouraged to see more women entering the field less women exiting the field and more women starting to make their way up through the ranks um, to be able to not only have, you know, the technical chops to sit at the table, 
but also making their way up through the ranks to be decision makers, to be designers, to be the innovative thinkers on creative solutions. Because this problem requires everyone. It's not a male female thing. We need everybody. We need, you know, the young, we need everybody, you know, kind of at the end of their career. We need male, female, we need all walks of life and backgrounds. Um, you know, this is one of the major problems of our era. And anybody who chooses to be in cybersecurity and intelligence operations is smack dab in the middle of it. Well, I can't think of a more powerful way to end this and really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me on and have me back, please. This was fun. We will. 